This morning we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 18 and going through chapter 10, verse 4. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. They laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, if you've uh, been with us, you know we've been walking through Matthew. If you have your Bibles, you can open them or turn them on to Matthew chapter 9. This is where we're going to camp out. Just to give you a little context, if you've been with us, you know that Matthew has wanted to communicate one thing very clearly since the end of chapter 7, that Jesus has authority over all things. Remember at the end of chapter 7, he commented that everybody was saying this Jesus, he, he teaches as one who has authority. And then in chapter 8, Matthew begins to show us examples of that authority. Jesus heals a leper. He calms a storm. uh, He casts out demons. And so again and again, we see examples of proof of the authority that Matthew is claiming that Jesus has. And in these chapters, we actually have three different sets of miracles. And what we have in our passage is, is this final set. And so on the surface, the main point, Matthew is wanting to drive home this idea that Jesus really does, in fact, have authority over everything. However, I think we have sufficiently covered the concept of Jesus' authority. So when I I get to this last uh, 
portion of miracles, I want to look at something that's just under the surface here. So authority is the surface. Just under the surface, we have a pretty neat framework to look at Jesus's ministry. We get to look at how Jesus goes about ministry in his context. And by implication, I think we can learn a lot that we can apply to our ministry so that we might better engage our neighborhoods and our workplaces, uh, wherever it is that God has us. The first four years uh, of my ministry, we were in Pisa, Italy, and I'm really thankful for, for a lot that God did in my life through those years. Uh, I made some really good friends. Uh, I learned a lot. I grew in my faith. I, th- I matured as an individual. Angela often says God really knew what he was doing when he saved you and immediately brought you to the other side of the earth for four years. <laughs> there was some maturing that had to go on. And it's as thankful as I am for everything that God did in me, I look back at those four years and I really can't identify anything he did through me. You know, I, I, don't, I look back and I don't see any real lasting fruit. I, I'm still thankful for these years. I met my wife during these years. I would do it all over again. But even the, the few people that we thought had given their lives to Jesus, we can see on Facebook now that it doesn't seem like that's at all uh, a part of their life anymore. And I, I look back and I don't, I'm not, you know, I don't blame anybody. We were a bunch of young people doing the best that we knew how in, in that context. But now looking back, I, I would do a lot of things differently. And as I look at this passage, a lot of the things that I wish I had known about ministry are contained here in Jesus's example of ministry. So I want to look at this and, and I want to answer two really simple questions that would have really benefited me in 2004 and I think still benefit me greatly today and I hope benefit everyone here. In this passage, we see why we do ministry and we see how we do ministry. So that's all we're going to look at, why we do ministry and how we do ministry and see how many more times I can hit this mic as I'm talking. All right, so why we minister. We minister because as we see in verse 36, we minister because without Jesus, we are all sheep without shepherds. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So what does this mean? I think it's really funny reading all the commentaries. There is so much that has been analyzed about the very specific habits of sheep (laughs) to, to be able to help us to understand what Jesus is talking about here, why he's comparing us to sheep. And you you have some comment, they don't even all agree, but you have some commentators who would say, sheep are dumb, so we're dumb. (laughs) They would would say things like, well, sheep, they stay in one spot and they keep eating the grass and they don't know to go to another spot, so they just start eating the dirt and they die. And then, you know, without a a shepherd to clean them and and shave them or whatever they do, you know, a a sheep is going to get bugs and infected and it's going to die. And then without a shepherd to protect them, the lions and the wolves were going to come in and they're going to eat them and they're going to die. And to read these commentaries, you wonder how sheep ever made it at all (laughs) before before they found these shepherds, how how they didn't go extinct way back in the very beginning. And then you have scientific studies that actually talk about how smart sheep actually are. And I don't know how you measure the IQ of a sheep, but they would say that they're actually not all that dumb. So what in the world, how do we analyze this? And and you add to that, none of us are probably very agricultural people here. (laughs) So what is it that Jesus is trying to communicate about sheep? Why is he likening us to sheep? I think it's actually pretty, pretty simple. Sheep without a shepherd are lost and at risk. 
lost and at risk. And that's what he's saying. We, without Jesus, are lost and, without, and, and at risk. So sheep, they are, they're not so helpless that they're going to go extinct tomorrow on their own without shepherds. But I think we can agree they are among the more helpless of the viable species on this earth. I mean, they, they, they're not fast. They don't have claws. They don't have sharp teeth. They can't fly. They don't blend in all that well. It's a pretty helpless species, although still viable. And this is a picture of us without Jesus. We are lost. We're at risk. And this language that Jesus is using of, of sheep and shepherd, it's, it's not new to the culture. Uh, this, the, sh- the sheep shepherding language, it had strong roots in the Old Testament. And typically, when, when this kind of language is employed in the Old Testament, it's talking about Israel without the prophet that they need or Israel without the king that they need. And so here's one more way that that Matthew is saying Jesus is the better prophet that you've been longing for. Jesus is the better king that you've been longing for. And without him, you are as lost and at risk as a sheep without a shepherd. So in what way are we at risk? We're at risk because without Jesus, we are prey to the great trifecta of evil in this life. You know, we have... The world, the flesh, and the devil. We have an external enemy, we have an internal enemy, and we have a very real and active invisible enemy that's trying to tell us that we don't matter, that we're not loved, that we don't have purpose, and that we're here to figure it out on our own in this life. If that isn't a picture of lost and at risk, I don't know what is. But for those of us under the care of the great shepherd, we know that that's not true. We know that we are loved, that we do matter, that we are pursued, we are protected, and that one day we will be brought home. And it doesn't mean that everything that happens in this life is going to feel good. We're not going to always understand what the shepherd is doing, but we can trust that it is for his glory and for our good. Uh, Many of you have heard of Elizabeth Elliot. She, um, she was a very well-known writer and speaker. Uh, she, she really became famous because she lost her first husband. Uh, he was killed by the tribes in South America that he was trying to reach. His name was Jim Elliott. Many of you heard of Jim. And she tells the story. One day she was with some shepherds in the highlands of northern Wales. And she found out watching them that one of the things they have to do with the sheep once a year is dip them in insecticide. So that they would not, you know, bugs would be gone and they would be more comfortable. And I guess the, the fur is better. Whatever you do with sheep fur, I don't know. Um, but she was describing the process and it sounded pretty terrible because to do it effectively, you have to actually grab all four feet so that the sheep is upside down and dip it in this insecticide and hold it there for 15 seconds. And she, the sheep did not like this. They were uncomfortable. They were scared. They didn't know what was going on. And she looked and she said, I know what that's like. Because my shepherd has done that quite a lot over the years to me. Jesus will protect us. He will pursue us. He will love us. We will not always understand what he's doing or why he's doing it. But what I appreciate in this passage, we can know that it's for our good because of the way that he looks out on people, on sheep without shepherds. It doesn't say he's angry at them. It doesn't say that he looked down on them in a, in a condescending way. Why, you know, why are you lost, sheep? How does he look at them? With compassion. He looks at all these sheep without shepherds in verse 36, and he says that he had compassion on them. 
So I was really convicted this week. Is, is this how I look at sheep without shepherds? Do I have this level of compassion for the spiritually, spiritually lost? To have compassion, literally, in the Greek, it means to be moved in one's stomach with sympathy. And I think I am somewhat motivated to see God's glory spread in the city, to see his kingdom grow. But then I start asking myself, myself, do I really have this compassion that Jesus seems to have for these sheep without shepherds? And the answer was no, not, not the way Jesus does. And then God in his grace, he, uh, we had Dee Coleman um, on the podcast this week. Dee is the executive director of Samaritan Village. And, and he started to give me a picture of this compassion because Samaritan's Village, as many of you know, they are a ministry in Orlando that helps bring women out of the sex trafficking industry. And I didn't know this until this week, but Orlando is the number one city in the United States for this kind of trafficking. And it makes sense because we have more supply and demand than any other city in the United States. So on the supply side, we, we have more women that are at risk for entering into this world. And you can listen to the podcast if you want to know why. But there, we have more women who are at risk to enter this world. And we have more demand than any place else in the United States because we are the number one most visited city in the U.S., Last year, over 75 million people came to, the, to, came to Orlando. I mean, we have more hotels than Las Vegas, and that's where this industry targets. The people in those hotels who come and visit with discretionary income and relative privacy. And she told us the story, this girl in Orlando, ah, she was 12, and she got into this world, and she disappeared for 17 years, and she popped back up she disappeared until she was 17, excuse me. And she popped back up when she was 17, heavily trafficked, addicted to heroin. And I began to see, I mean, who, whose heart doesn't bleed for someone like that? That's the kind of compassion that I felt like Jesus was saying, that's how I feel towards these sheep. It's easy to feel it for a 12-year-old girl in that horrible, horrible lifestyle. But what Jesus is saying is that we don't understand that The plight of sheep without a shepherd, as horrible as that story is, that plight is even worse. And then you you compound it with the sheer magnitude of the shepherdlessness in the city. What most people would define as the Orlando area is a seven-county area that's comprised of about 4.3 million people, growing fast. Probably by 2030, it will be 5.2 million people. And you look at that population, and right now only 6% of our population goes to any kind of church that we would call Bible-believing. So I'm including the very fringes of evangelicalism, 6%. And so you think about that, and, and then... I mean, it's hard to be compassionate anyway. And then we look at the sheer scope of the lostness and it's easy just to want to turn our emotions off. It's easy just to want to numb ourselves to what's going on out here. And then you add the reality that 1,500 people a week are moving here every week. And so that that number, the percentage of evangelicals in our city is just decreasing literally by the week. And there is only one way that this will change. One way. By God's grace and through the power of his Holy Spirit, that we would have incredible compassion for all the sheep without a shepherd in our context. That's the only way this can change because that's the way God has designed it to change. And if if some of you are out there and you're thinking, okay, I I could get behind the compassion, but then I don't even know what to do. (laughs) I don't know the first step. I don't know, I don't feel equipped to go and engage 94% of this multi-million person city. 
if that's how you feel, that's the second part of the message, (laughs) how we minister. Because in this passage, Jesus gives us a six-fold framework for his ministry. So you thought, this is going to be a short sermon. Jim only has two points this week. And then you see the second point has six subpoints. It's all right. I promise I will have you home by dinner. All right. The first thing we see in Jesus's ministry is that he goes. All right. I mean, Jesus is the ultimate, ultimate example of going. Jesus is the second, the second person of the Trinity. God in flesh come from heaven down here. And then he doesn't, just upon his arrival, that doesn't complete his going. Then he goes to the sick, to the hurting. He goes to the oppressed. He goes to, to the possessed. He even goes to the dead and brings them into his kingdom. And his going doesn't stop there. He goes all the way to the cross because he knows that only by laying down his life for ours will his sheep ever be able to be truly shepherded by the true shepherd. And that model of going is what should it should be our model as well. And, and maybe, maybe one of you might be called to go in a way that will cost you your very life. I don't know. Maybe, probably not for most, if not all of us, but the same type of sacrificial going is gonna be required of all of us if we're going to see sheep brought under the fold of the shepherd. It's gonna mean denying ourselves because we are pursuing sheep that don't even know they're lost. So going. Second thing we see is that Jesus teaches. Look at verse 35. All right, 35 is really important because this is the second time that that Matthew has included this almost verbatim sentence, okay? He's already said this, now he's saying it again. So the next three things that we see are coming from this sentence, from this passage. So the first thing is teaching. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues. So what is Jesus teaching? Scripture. He's teaching the fulfillment of all the prophecies. He's teaching a right understanding of all the laws. He's basically teaching that everything in Scripture at that time was pointing towards him. He is the ultimate fulfillment of everything that was promised to Israel and ultimately the world. And he's giving them a right understanding of the Scripture that they have. So why is it important? Every growing Christian... Every maturing Christian, I'm guessing, has this moment where, where you understand for the first time that the Bible isn't just 66 random books that are attached and do different things. And you begin to see that the Bible is actually 66 different books that make up one story, one story about Jesus Christ. And when we understand this, the Bible goes from, from maybe confusing or even boring and it becomes engaging and maybe even compelling, we begin to want to wake up in the morning and read this Bible because it's not just a bunch of facts. We find ourselves caught up in a story, a story that's still unfolding, a story that we get to be a part of. And I could imagine somebody saying, all right, I get that, Jim. All right, it's fun to read a story, but that doesn't mean it's helpful or real. Why is it that we need to understand scripture? Well, Martin Luther actually gave a really good uh, answer to this. He, he goes back to Psalm 19, Psalm 19, 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So Martin Luther says that all of creation in some way declares the glory of God. We should be able to walk through the woods. We should be able to go to the beach and hear and see creation proclaiming the glory of God, but we can't because we are sinful and we live in a fallen world. So in the same way that someone blows a dog whistle, hard as they can. It's making a noise, but we can't hear it. We don't have that capacity. 
or if, you know, if, if we know that we have infrared rays and we have radio signals. This is not Martin Luther. This is me now. <laughs> They're out there, but we don't have the ability to see it. So in the same way, all creation in some way, it, it communicates the glory and the power and the might of God, but we don't have the ability to hear it or to see it. So God wants to overcome our inability to see and hear his glory through creation so he communicates with us in the clearest possible way, the written word. And in the word, we don't have everything there is to know about God. I mean, I, if every, I imagine everything there is to know about God, if it's contained in all the oceans all over the earth, what we get in the Bible is a little cup. But that cup is the most important part because it's not everything there is to know about God. It's not even everything that we might want to know about God, but it's everything that we need to know about God. Peter says what we have in the word is everything we need for life and godliness or everything we need for life and salvation. It's contained here. So Jesus teaches. And then in the same passage, we see third that he also preaches. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So this word proclaim, it's the same word we would use for preach. And preaching and teaching, there's a lot of overlapping between the two, but they're not the same. Preaching contains instruction. It contains teaching, but it's not just teaching. Because when when we talk about teaching, it's it's going to be more exhaustive. And that's not the way that that I approach preaching. When, when, When we preach, we try to identify the main point of the passage. We want to be faithful to the main point of the passage, but then we want to communicate in a way that is more likely to get people's hearts. It has more exhortation. It might have more illustration. It will have more application, and it will often call somebody to the point of some sort of decision in their life. You know, there's always things in the text that I don't, that I don't address, that I have to leave on the cutting room floor because they might come at the expense of making the main point the main point. And this is why we have equipping hour. And why all of you should go to equipping hour. Equipping hour is where we get more exhaustively teaching. And in equipping hour, in the 930 hour, we teach the Bible. We teach systematic theology, biblical theology, church history, missional living. And as you heard, the 40% of you were here in the beginning of the service. We have right now a church-wide equipping hour. A church-wide equipping hour where we come and we're talking about how we can live more missionally and engage the city. So preaching and teaching are different things but we also want to be careful not to begin to think that preaching is only for somebody like me for a man who is called by a church freed up financially to to really focus and study and come and preach in this context in some capacity all of us are called to preach all of us this word for proclaim. It's also the same word in the Old Testament that's used when heralds go and they proclaim the word of the king. The herald has the honor and privilege of going and speaking on behalf of the king. And those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who believe in the true shepherd and who follow the true shepherd, we have this word that we not only have to, but we get to proclaim to everyone in our life in some way that these are the words of the king. And please hear me, it doesn't mean that we need to go and be preachy. Okay? That, that proclaiming and being preachy are two different things. Because often to proclaim well, it might require hours and hours and hours of listening. 
so that you can get to know somebody and hear their hurts and their fears and their hopes and their aspirations so that you can take, you can prayerfully and guided by the Spirit take the Word of God and proclaim it to their life in a way that's going to hit where they are and in a way that's going to call them to some sort of decision that's going to move them closer to the shepherd. That's proclaiming. Something all of us are called to do if we are going to see sheep respond to the shepherd. And then fourth, we see that healing was a foundational element of Jesus' teaching, uh, of Jesus' ministry. And this, is, this actually is the bulk of our passage, this healing. So continuing, 935, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. So first, we see that Jesus heals this hemorrhaging woman, and then he raises a girl from the dead. And now, we have to remember, because Matthew in the beginning, he says that there are all these different miracles that happen. But he's picking specific ones to communicate specific things. So why is he picking these two women? Why is he putting them together? Because in the ancient world, they didn't, of course, have all the medical knowledge that we have at this point. But they understood there were certain, certain things you could do to avoid getting sick. And, and two of the things that they know is you don't touch a hemorrhaging woman or a dead body. These were actually clearly, explicitly, explicitly laid out in Old Testament laws in part to help keep people healthy. But then here comes Jesus. He goes and he touches a hemorrhaging woman and he touches a dead body. And the miraculous thing is that they didn't infect him. He infected them. This works in reverse. And then Jesus restores the sight of the two blind men. He, he cast the demon out of a mute man. And immediately he began to speak. And his power is so clearly on display at this point that the Pharisees who are opposing him, they've got to come up with some reason to say they shouldn't follow Jesus. And the only thing they can come up with is we think his power comes from Satan himself. So the big question, if we all agree healing is a big part of Jesus's ministry, how do we, how does that translate into our lives and our ministries here in Orlando or wherever it is that God has you? Well, fortunately, Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. All right, so there is a whole camp of brothers and sisters who would say what this is teaching is that we should be going out and seeing even more physical miracles happening. We should be seeing more healings. Some would take it so far as to say we should have the power to raise the dead back to life. Now, that's not my position, but before I explain my position, I do want to say something important. We do serve a God who can heal. We do serve a God who cares about our physical condition and he is a God that wants us to come and to ask him for things, including miraculous physical healings. But he isn't promising that every one of our requests will be answered because sometimes in in view of his glory and our good, the answer is yes. Sometimes in view of his glory and our good, the answer is no. And those no's are really hard to really explain if you understand this promise to be that we will go out and we will perform these greater miracles in the world of physical healings. All right, so there's two main reasons that I don't think that's what this is communicating, that we should be able to go out and do these kinds of physical healings on a greater 
you know, in a greater degree than Jesus. The first is because Jesus is clearly saying that what we'll doing, what we will do will top what he did. So how do you top what he's doing? It literally, it says he, he heals every disease and every ailment, every sickness. He even restores them back from the dead. So if we go out and we heal every disease and every illness and bring the dead back to life, we're just on par with Jesus. We're not topping him in any way. So that's the first reason. I don't think that can be the way that we understand this. The second is that in the context of John chapter 14, Jesus is talking about the power of the Holy Spirit coming into the the kingdom in the new covenant. So what's going on is Jesus is foreshadowing in his physical miracles the power of the kingdom that we will have spiritually. So in the words of my former pastor, J.D. Shaw, He says, when Jesus preached the good news, it was in anticipation of what was going to happen. Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet. He hadn't been resurrected yet. He hadn't ascended into heaven yet. His gospel proclamation was a promise of what would come. Our proclamation, by contrast, is a great deal about what has already happened. We get to tell people about an already crucified, risen, and reigning Savior of the world who loves them. So Jesus healed physical illnesses but by the power of the holy spirit we get to go out and do something even greater we get to be a part of healing spiritual illnesses jesus came and he he healed physical sight by the power of the holy spirit we get to go out and being a part of healing spiritual blindness jesus raised people physically from from the dead brought them from the grave we by the power of the holy spirit get to be a part of raising the spiritually dead and saving them from an eternal grave. This is the greater work. And that's the way that Jesus' ministry of healing should inform the way that we engage our context and we go and we engage shepherdless sheep and show them to the shepherd. And then fifthly, we see that prayer undergirded Jesus' ministry. And and really clearly that it should undergird ours because right after Jesus laments All these sheep without a shepherd, he says this. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus is changing metaphors here. So what he was doing was he was lamenting the shortcomings of all these sheep without shepherds. Now he's looking out at all these lost people and he's looking, he's seeing potential. He he goes from shortcoming to potential. He sees them as grain that's ready to be harvested. And I think this would be particularly encouraging in light of all the depressing statistics I just threw out at you. Because if Barna is to be trusted, then 94% of the people we're going to interact with in the Orlando area, they're all potential saints. All potential saints. But if we're going to see such potential, we need to go to the Lord of the harvest. So on the surface, I think this is somewhat odd if you think about it. Because if you're going out into a field and you're gonna harvest some grain and you can see there's a lot to harvest and we don't have, it's just me, I can't do this alone. So you go back to the owner maybe and you tell him, listen, I need more laborers. That man's communicating to the owner because of some shortcoming on the part of the owner. So either the owner doesn't have the resources or he doesn't know that they need more laborers, but we know that God has no shortcoming. He knows everything. So really the only possible answer, according to John Piper, is that God has willed that the harvest be preceded by prayer. 
That's, that's how he has designed it. Harvests are preceded by prayer. Because God, he doesn't just want to bless us with the harvest. He wants to bless us in the largest possible way. He wants to give us a desire for something. And then he wants us to ask for that thing. And then when he gives us that thing, we enjoy it more and he's glorified more. And this really does accord with most of what I've read in, in church history. It seems like most of the revivals and these big missionary efforts and church planting movements, it seems like they were almost always preceded by this deep desire that God would be glorified, that his gospel would go forward and people got together and they prayed for these things. So I don't think it would be too far off if we want to know where, where this next harvest is going to come from that we ask ourselves, well, what are we praying for? What are we praying for? Because that's the way that God brings these harvests about. What are we doing to seek the Lord of the harvest for a harvest among us? All right, and then lastly, we don't just go, but we go together. And you notice in chapter 10, this is actually kind of hard to see. When Matthew names the disciples, he does this in pairs. They're not going alone. He says, Simon and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, James and Thaddeus, Simon and Judas. So Jesus doesn't want us to go rogue. He doesn't send us alone. He has us engaging in ministry together in the context of a local church. And and that doesn't mean that I can't have some ministry effort with friends from New City or friends from Summit. They're a part of the church here too. But it does mean that God has brought us together in the context of Orlando Grace Church so that we can do more together than we ever could apart from each other. I've said this a number of times, I know at this point, but at the end of the day, the church is a missions outpost. That's what we are. We gather together every Sunday for teaching and singing and prayer and fellowship so that we can be refueled and reoriented and scatter into our communities so that when we gather again, we bring more people with us. That's the rhythm of a missions outpost. And if I'm honest, this, this is the piece I think that was missing in Pisa, Italy for us. Again, I'm I don't blame anybody. We were, we were really young. We were doing the best we had with the tools that we had at our disposal. And we needed a lot of things. We needed theological training. We needed language training. We needed cultural training. But more than all those things, we needed a church. In all of Pisa, there was not a single church that could be remotely <laughs> defined as evangelical or Bible-believing. Now there is, praise God, there's an Acts 29 church in Pisa, Italy. But back then there wasn't. And I think of all the blessings that a church could have been to come alongside us and pray for us and help us and train us and to receive our friends and our disciples and to be able to continue to walk with them long after we're gone. When I look at all the things that we lacked and we lacked a lot, that was the main thing. And so by God's grace in 2011, we got to go back to Italy. We went to Salerno, Italy this time. Angela calls it our redemption tour because we, we got to go to Salerno having learned from this first experience and we got to arrive, yes, a little more mature, more theologically trained, now fluent in the language, but we got to be a part of a church plant. And little did I know at, at that time uh, that the planters, Juddy and Abby Valaket, were sent out by the church that I would be pastoring seven years later. That's kind of crazy. 
but we got to come alongside them in their effort to plant a church. And now we get to look at what they have over there where every Sunday, 30 to 40 people are gathering and worshiping. And we, we see that their leaders being raised up to be able to, to execute lots of pieces of their ministry. It's not just on Juddie and Abby's shoulders anymore. And in two weeks in worship, you're gonna get to meet one of their laborers, uh, one of their leaders, but we look and we see how clear it was that the church was the missing piece. I want us to be marked as a church, as people who are growing in our compassion for the lost, growing in our compassion for the sheep who don't see the true shepherd and growing in our ability to pursue them and pull them back to the shepherd. That, that's, that's why we're here. That's basically why we do everything that we do. So I just wanna finish by praying for exactly that. And as we transition to communion, to see the tools that the shepherd has given us to reinforce our focus on him. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you that we see that we are sheep without shepherds, without a, without a shepherd outside of Jesus Christ. But we thank you that you've provided the true shepherd, that you love us and care for us, but more than that, you equip us to go and be a part of your kingdom coming. And you don't just give us instructions and tell us to go, you give us tools and resources, foremost of which is the Holy Spirit, And God, we pray that that would be true of us, that we would be people being transformed by the power of your spirit, conformed into the image of your son, shining as lights in this dark place, and that we would be model sheep following the shepherd and showing everyone how great it is to be led by the true shepherd. And as we transition to communion, God, we pray that you would bless this time, that you would take these ordinary elements, that you would turn them from their ordinary form and use them the way you have designed to use the bread and the juice to further the mission of your son, Jesus Christ, of your gospel and your kingdom coming. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.